Hello everybody and welcome to the 49th ever Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. A podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, mind games, all the games you can play in your house, outside your house. You lucky dog, you can play them anywhere. My name's Quentin Smith. It's a frosty autumn morning. I feel a bit like a cool radio DJ, except for the fact that Paul is also on the other end of the phone, ruining my style. How's it going, Paul? Hi, it's. Uh, I was really enjoying that. I didn't want to interrupt that. It's uh, t- honestly, I didn't want to be interrupted either. I could just witter to myself. That's what I'm like in the mornings. Uh, but no, I have to have conversations. It's complicated. Do you know, we could have this just as a separate offshoot, a subcategory of the uh, of the podcast. By the way, the weather here. It's actually the first like cold evening that I've had here because I'm Ever? recording this. Definitely like this year. The weird thing is I've lived in Vancouver now for nearly two years and I don't think it's gone below zero degrees in the whole time that I've lived here. Yeah. Uh, Certainly not like in the city. Maybe it's just touched freezing. Obviously, like, Mm. you know, the rest of uh, surrounding bits of Canada have. But tonight I was actually like puffing really cold uh, air uh, puffing steam into the cold air out of my mouth and it was actually really chilly and i haven't felt i don't think i felt like that last winter you know what paul you and i have played against type for too long in five years of running shut up and sit down let's just talk about the weather you know let's return to who we are as english there's a lot of interesting things we can talk about Hey, maybe Paul, we'll t- say that for the comments. Because... <laughs> Talking about interesting things, shall I run through everything we've got coming up this episode? Do it, and I'll sit back in my chair. Do, do. Enjoy yourself. Ah. Uh, in terms of board games, uh, in what our community has started uh, lovingly describing as podcast fodder, we have all the games that uh, we don't think are quite good enough for review necessarily. Uh, I've been playing um, Dream Home, a game of building lovely homes. Cottage Garden, a game of building lovely gardens. Aeon's End, a game of uh, defending fantasy cities from fantastical beasts. Uh, Paul, what have you been playing? Wow, well, you almost just turned into a homeowner at that point, but you fortunately came out to meet me in the land of fantasy because I have been playing um, Four Gods a bit more, which we briefly sort of played at Gen Con, but I now have a copy and I've been playing some more of that. Mm -hmm. I've been playing Mythos Tales, which is the Cthulhu, basically the Cthulhu Sherlock Holmes consulting detective game. And I've been playing the Harry Potter cooperative deck building board game, which is called, I think it's called Hogwarts Battle. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I was sort of reaching for a, a joke about that, but there were too many and my brain locked up. Uh, after that, we're going to reach into our mailbag and we've got no less than one, two, three, four excellent reader mails sent into us. That's, That's a, too many. What a... What a treat. It is too many. We're not going to... It's like being given a plate of biscuits and you're not going to eat them all. Or are you? You know, because if you are, it's going to be bad for you uh, as you crash down from all that sugar. Ooh, ooh, what's up with me? I'm very <laughs> English this morning. Biscuits, uh, after that, we have cold weather and cottages. Not one, but two folk games for our folk games of the month. But one is not going to count as a folk game. And I can't wait to see if you can figure out why Marcus Brisman's game is not a folk game before we have to throw over to Dr. Chris Savile's game. I feel like we've, we've turned screen. everything on its head. Yeah, well, oh, we God. have. 
This is what happens with the new recording schedule where we record when I wake up and I'm, I'm tender and raw like a new babe. Why don't, Ooh. oh God, why don't you tell me about your dream home? Because you were uh, really excited about this. Goodness me. Okay, let's get this uh, dream ball rolling. <coughs> Excuse me, with dream home. So uh, Asmodee's dream oh. home, or uh, rebel.pl, I think of the publisher. Uh, for most of Europe. Um, it is a beautiful looking game, mid-sized box about uh, uh, players all building their dream home together. You get a massive chunky cardboard uh, house to begin with, which is like a hollow house and there's nothing in it. And then um, there's a it, unspeakably beautiful uh, deck of cards, which illustrate all the different rooms, uh, you know, like living rooms, Paul, uh, bedrooms, kitchens, uh, garages, all the classic rooms that you can find in a house and also some unusual ones. Does it have like um, the, the Cluedo type rooms where it's got like observatory and library? No, and... no it's more like, you know, playroom, uh, bedroom, kids room, uh, what else? Study. Uh, it's it's not so much like uh, some people have been talking about a game called Best Treehouse Ever, um, which is a similar thing about designing your best treehouse ever. You know where you can have rooms that are like this is the paintball room, but no, Dream Home is a game for people who want to get genuinely excited at the idea of having a library in their house. <laughs> you know, like oh, I could, I could do that. Me too, I can as well. And uh, it's funny, <clears throat> we were laughing in the shut up and sit down Slack about the fact that, you know, so often we review games where, you know, you can be a warrior fighting orcs in a beautiful fantasy world, and now, you know, with the economy, the way that, um, uh, the way that fantasy and wish fulfillment has uh, come to board games is, hey, guess what? You could have a house. Yeah. Um, which it's, I thought was pretty funny. It's really a thing, though. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but I've always been a little bit of, fan, of a fan of things like uh, The Sims, Mm, what of course, was the other yeah. one I was thinking of? But there's something weirdly, I don't know what it is. There's some part of me that is sort of quite domestic and likes the idea of having a a home of some sort that, you know, you build it in your own image or the way that you want, but you construct that and you make your own <laughs> space and you personalize it. And I know, but you're talking about this like it's just mythical rather than something people it, just did in the 60s. nowadays. I mean, it's that whole 50s, 60s, like, especially in America, that whole consumerist thing of like, you buy the best appliances and you, you upgrade your kitchen and you put these things in. And it's, the thing is, it's also really easy to gamify. Yeah, okay, so it is. Let's uh, uh, talk about this game then. And the idea behind it is that every round, there are like, uh, what, 10 rounds? And everyone has 10 slots in their house. You put out a shop of room cards, but then also um, parallel to this uh, shop of cards that are dealt out each round uh, from a different deck are like, I don't know, I'm going to call them DIY cards. So like um, uh, the, the cards are then twinned up. So Paul, let's say it's your turn and you look at the shop and you go, ooh, I'll take that bathroom that's underneath the handyman. <laughs> so you then get a bathroom and a handyman and I take the uh, library with the, I don't know, cement mixer card. And then you have to put down that card on your board. So uh, initially, because you can't build uh, rooms in thin air on the second floor, you're going to have to put that bathroom on the ground floor. And once cards are down in your house, you can't move them. So what you're really doing is trying to assemble your house using all the multipliers. So if you put, like, uh, living rooms next to each other, I'm not sure if I've ever been this boring. I'll shut up no, and sit this down. is kind I'm of sure fascinating I to me. I don't it know about anyone else, but... Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like we're splitting our audience in half right now, so I won't talk about this for too long. But, um, yeah, so the way that the card art is designed and every single 
uh, illustration is like full bleed on the card, so it spreads out right to the edges of the card, and every illustration is unique. So if you get three living room cards and put them next to each other, you get like a visual tableau of like a giant living room uh, with all kinds of beautiful furniture. Um, and then that's the max multiplier for that card. So bath there's no benefit to having a big bathroom, but you do want multiple bathrooms on each floor, or one on each floor, not like four on each floor. Um, and so you see how all the cards score in different ways, Paul? Um, and then that's complicated by the fact that you can only build vertically upwards, so you can't build your second floor unless it's going on top of a first floor card. So it's a lot of compromising, right? It's a lot of, oh, I really want a bedroom to go there, but... Uh, you know, I suppose I'll have to have a study instead. Yeah, so um, you're, you're sort of snatching at things, or you're, you're making the best possible choice out of what there is, even if it yeah. derails your... So ironically, your... It, it's not quite dream home, it's more like, you know, compromise home. Um, and then the, uh, the, cards got, the cards you've got that are like a handyman and cement mixer. So the cement mixer might mix up and let you swap two cards in your house. The handyman might uh, like mean your garages count extra points or something. And there's little cardboard tiles like if you get like a whirlpool bath, then you can put the whirlpool bath token in your house. It's fine. The art mm. is like maybe my favorite like... It just most lovingly illustrated thing I've seen all year. The game, I mean, there's honestly not much to it. Um, it occupies a very weird space where kids could play it and adults could play it, but I don't know if either of them would have fun. Well, so um, it, I immediately, you described it, and then I immediately wanted to just ask, is that it? Uh, yes, but it's a simple game. Um and obviously simple card games can be fine but simple card games good ones are still charged with a lot of emotion you know they're still charged with oh I really wanted that card problem with um, Dream Home is that the difference between getting the card you want and not is like two three points um, in a game where you're going to score like 30 points so if you don't get what you need it's not like my Dream Home is now a disaster it's like well I'm now going to score two less points do you get any points for like grouping things or getting sets of things or comboing things or okay Yep. Um, yes, you do. Uh, but it, that's, I mean, it's just not hugely exciting, you know. The, like, uh, I, I don't know, pulling back to Mundus Novus, which is one of our favorite card games ever, there's that thing that as you increase a, <coughs> a set of trade goods that they become exponentially more profitable and exciting. And then if you get all 10 trade goods, then, oh, my God, you've shot the moon and you just win instantly. Um uh, surprising everybody um, whereas Dream Home is like you know d- d- you look at the shop and, oh there's a living room and no one else took it so now you can have your third living room segment and that's two points more than you would have got <laughs> you see what I mean um, yes uh, obviously I'm paraphrasing and I would criticise it more in a big review but generally uh, holy shit go and look at it online because that art is it's just so beautiful like it's like if Pixar made a board game um uh, it just they're so full of character and life in all the faces and furniture. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, maybe don't buy it. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of something that uh, something sort of gentle and parochial that people might love but maybe shouldn't buy, you've been playing the Harry Potter deck builder. Yeah, I have. So it's funny that that's the perfect segue. That's what I actually wanted to bring up because it was also a game that initially. Um, I was a little bit excited about it. I was, I was sort of curious about it because obviously it's, uh, you know, a hugely famous franchise. It's a big thing. And then it turned up and I opened the box and it actually uh, jumped slightly up in my review queue because it had a whole load of subdivided boxes within the box. Oh, really? Right. 
which are um, games that you play in order. You have game one, game two, all the way up to game seven. And each game represents a year at Hogwarts. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> and you start off with game one is like a tutorial game which is like if you've never played a deck building game before this is how they work you have some cards and you use those cards to buy other cards that make your collection of cards more powerful so you can uh, do damage to defeat certain uh, famous Harry Potter bad guys and recruit people into your deck like uh, you know a famous teacher or a cool item from the books or the films Mm. Um, but then you you get to the end of that, and then it says, right, you've done year one. Open open the next box. It's year two, and then that's like, oh well, now things are a bit different. You've got like different people to fight, and there are more cards, and then more components appear, and then the rules change a bit. And you know, on paper, this <laughs> well, right on paper, this potentially looks good. I thought, oh, this is a little bit like doing a legacy game kind of thing. But so here's the thing. I'm listening. And, and, and he, I was even willing to be like, oh, this could be at least like a good introductory game to get people who aren't in, much into board gaming to like play a thing because, you know, the Harry Potter will act as a bridge into a new hobby. A Harry Potter-shaped bridge. A Daniel Radcliffe sort of stretched out Is there a bridge. spell, like a spell that they do in the book where that bridge appears? Probably. <laughs> Bridgimus. <laughs> and then like a bridge appears in front of one of them. Anyway, so you've... There's, there's not actually even as you start adding more and more things in, and the game gets a bit more complex and it gets a bit more stuff. There's sort of no bottom to it. There's not really the complexity that it needs, and there's certainly not the excitement. And so here's the thing: we talked about the Arkham Horror, the new Arkham Horror card game, a little while ago. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that everyone's talking about. Yeah, and you know how it has, it has like all the famous Lovecraft things. It has like, oh, here's that monster from that book, and here's that character, or here's that location, and now mm-hmm. they're all jumbled together in a way that, that it's just like it's constantly winking at you, going like, here's right. that thing, and now they're all here and. I see where you're going. It's, so in this, it'll be the case of, you know, oh, we need to defeat this guy, but it's okay because I have a Snape and a Dumbledore. Right, and it's got here. all the famous, because everything's a franchise now, it's got all the franchise nods. It's got Professor Snope and Rick Weasley and Admiral <laughs> Akbar and uh, Dr. McCoy and all the Harry, Harry Pitter characters. And they go into your deck and it's like, well, this card does one damage. Why, why does Hermione Granger's cat do one damage? doesn't matter it just does yeah so you put a load of these things and a lot of some of them even just do the same thing it's different characters different items and they basically sort of have the same power and you play a sort of a race against time where um you have people like voldemort or uh i don't know jason borner whoever is trying to take over a location (laughs) in a place and if you know if you don't play your cards efficiently enough then the you know the game plays itself it's cooperative against like decks of things that happen you know if you play very efficiently hopefully you pay, play well enough that you score enough points to knock over bad guys and get cool cards in your deck but it's it's just all you could take all the pictures and the labels off everything and sort of have a card game uh, the theme doesn't have to be there nothing makes sense it doesn't there's no reason why, like, you, Dumbledore does a thing. He just does. And the <laughs> thing know, is, just like Dominion... Things like Dominion have so much more... I know Dominion's old, but Dominion has lots of cards that do different things that combo and trigger. 
And there's not really this here. There's not enough comboing. There's not like room to make really clever plays. It's just like you buy better cards and the numbers get mostly the numbers get bigger. Yeah, it's funny how um, these days in board games, there are some really good ideas that have come up in the last five years, like deck building, like legacy mechanics. Um, uh, and pe- people are able to make, get you know, tie-in licensed games that are so much better than the traditional board games. Um, but it still doesn't solve the problem of, like, what is your final 5% of design? You know, what is the final 5, 10, 15% that has been playtested rigorously and that is so dramatic and causes interesting decisions to occur? Um, it's it's almost like so much easier for board games to masquerade as something really good um, because you go, oh, legacy mechanics and beautiful art design and a deck builder and there's boxes in the box and shit. Um, but it, it, in a way, it's like it's almost made things harder um, to have all these fantastic ideas floating around that people can crib. It's, yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's fine. It's okay. It's like you <laughs> could play this with some Harry Potter people. It's just... You know, there's there's no there's no bite in there that makes you feel like this could be any better as a Harry Potter game than it could as some other progressive story. Like you could probably find a way to do this with Star Wars, and yes. like at the moment, you know, you're a, you're a bad Jedi, and then this happens, and next year you're a bit better Jedi. So here's some new cards, and here's some new components that do a thing. Right. Uh, I'm trying not to like put any spoilers in here, but it's just it's. <laughs> It's like mm, you could have tried to kick some actual mechanics that reflect the plot, or the, the I don't know. It needs hey, more. I'm ready to break uh, type for the podcast now. I'm going to talk about a deck builder that's actually really, really quite good, um, and that I enjoyed my time with, but won't be getting a review necessarily. Uh-oh. It might. I don't know. So I played Aeon's End, um, which is the new deck builder from Indie Boards and Cards. Uh, big box, I think it got kickstarted because it arrived already with some expansions <laughs> at my house. Um, and Aeon Zenpol, uh, picture the scene. You are one of the last human survivors after some kind of fantasy apocalypse. Oh, no. I know. You live in a big underground city called Gravesend. Lots of sort of. Uh, uh, like Adobe. Gravesend in Kent? Uh, yes, but uh, I think it's Gravesend. Uh, maybe it's an American designer. I'm almost certain, rather than a reference to the slightly grim English town. Um, <laughs> so you're living in Gravesend, but underground, um, and you are one of the. Ooh, I don't know. Let's call them wizards, but there's a special name for them: gem wizards, who protects Gravesend when occasionally the walls come down and monsters arrive. Right. Um, and so you've got this central shop, just like any deck builder, of um, crystals, which are basically your money, and spells and items. And they can all be bought and put in your deck, and then they'll come back out of your deck because your discard pile becomes your deck, and then you draw more cards, and they're the cards you've bought, and you get excited. Um, and again, sounds like Harry Potter, you're going up against a deck that is the big villain that you're fighting. Um, but... But. It's really good. It's really quite good. So it's cooperative. All of you are just trying to defeat this monster in time. And if you do, you can play that same monster again on hard mode. Or you could play one of the four other uh, villains uh, that are in the box. You can change your characters, all of whom have special abilities. But there's a couple of uh, really quite cool things um, to do with just thinking about how deck building works. Mm-hmm. Um, the first of which is that uh, everyone at home, I'm sure, is uh, aware of um, roughly how deck building works. You've got a very small, slim deck full of possibility. You draw five cards and then you play them, maybe to acquire more cards from the center of the board. They all go into your discard pile. And when you're um, 
discard when your draw pile runs out, which will probably be very quickly at the start. You take that discard pile, you shuffle it, and you draw five cards. Right. 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 Paul, are you ready to have your mind blown? I hope so, because Harry Potter didn't do that to me. Okay. Well, yeah, it's not exactly what Harry Potter is famous for. He's more famous for sort of muddling along, muddling along. Ma- oh, I'm sorry. I wish we had like a bell we could ring when people make really good jokes. Maybe I'll just put a sound effect in. I won't do that. Um, so the thing in Aeon's End is that you never shuffle your discard pile. Um, you Ooh. just pick pick it face up and you pick it and flip it. Um, and then it's ah. your draw deck. So it means that when you're discarding like money cards you buy at the end of your turn, you can do it in a certain order to try and bunch them together. It means they can do cool mechanics to do with some cards being good paired up with other cards and you just have to make sure you draw them both. Also, um, there are kind of, imagine like spell slots at the top of your character sheet. And one of the other things you can spend money on rather than acquiring new cards is like ripping open these tears in the fabric of reality. And once you've done that, um, you get additional slots at the top of your character sheet that can then sort of stop hold spells. So okay. like you draw a spell and it's like a, a, a gem fireball. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing the thing much justice here, but you've got your gem fireball and it's not very good. Like maybe it's one of the starter spells you got, um, but you can slot it there in, the, in, the, in your weapon rift thing. But then it's out of your deck because it's not in your hand, it's not in your deck. So you've just thinned your deck out. Um, and then your spells just sort of sit there being cooked like grenades or something until you choose to fire them off and then they go into your discard pile and again because you don't shuffle that means you can get your spell in your deck at a time when you're not going to have that awful turn in a deck builder where you've got no economy because you drew right. one of your yes it is very interesting which, and which then... is interesting yeah it's it's interesting I mean I can't say it's like massively exciting <laughs> and so I'm going to use the word interesting again for like the fifth time in five minutes but it's interesting and then like the monster deck has all kinds of different things that happen like um, you know maybe it's a it's a card that says oh someone has to discard half their hand this turn or you all have to play a certain amount of economy or someone has to remove a card from their deck and because of these cards um, they foster a lot of discussion between players okay um, Uh, And finally, just the turn order is a little deck that's shuffled. Super simple. So let's say you, me, and Millicent are playing. We each get a card um, that says it's our turn. We build a deck out of those cards. We put in a fourth card that is a wild turn that any of us could take. And then we put in two villain cards and we shuffle that. And that's our round. So we know the villain's going to act twice. We don't know when. We know the probability. So we can be like, oh, but if it's Paul's turn next, then we're safe. But if it's not, then maybe I should do the thing. Um, it's good. It really is quite good. Um, and the thing that is holding me back from descending into a world of gems and wizards and reviews with mm-hmm. it yeah. is the fact that, honestly, uh, there's a lot of good games that I want to review that we're not going to talk about on this podcast that you can see on shutupandsitdown.com in the next couple of weeks in videos and written format. It's actually just not a very nice object, um, which is petty, and we don't usually care much about that, but when I've got, like, an interesting game of Aeon's End and an interesting game of something else, and that something else just is as interesting but looks nicer and is more physically appealing, like, I don't massively like the art on Aeon's End, and more importantly, all the cardstock is quite flimsy. Oh, it's really? Just, it's just quite a cheaply manufactured thing. Um... And I don't, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the art design. It's, it's quite bare bones. There's not that much art or flavor text. Um, cards don't feel nice. And so I wasn't expecting much going into it. And I played it and it was good. And 
you know, maybe let's move on to one of the games you've played, you know? I would absolutely recommend people to look up Aeon Zend and maybe buy it if they're interested. Aeon is spelled A-E-O-N apostrophe S. It's a lovely little thing um, and you will have fun with it. Uh, it's just, it's like, it, it's hanging on to whether we would review it or not. That line, it's hanging on to it with its fingernails um, and I and I just don't see us reviewing it, but hey, who knows? You know, I'm having flashbacks to uh, Ascension, which I did not enjoy the art for at all. Ah, right, yes. Do you remember that all a couple of years ago now and how it just... It's not a game that I was hugely excited by anyway, but also I... I feel bad saying this, but I did not enjoy how that looked. How would you describe the art for Ascension? Uh, which is one of the better iPad or iOS adaptations of a board game. It is a, a, not a bad adaptation of a game with art that is like soup. <laughs> is maybe what I can best say. What an excellent uh, descriptor. Yeah, oh, it looks boy. like uh, someone... I like it, but if I'm having fun... With describing it, it looks like someone walked up to the finished picture and then just swirled it around a bit with their finger. Yeah, actually, yeah. No, I, it's a shame because everything you describe sounds interesting and it's there's so much stuff in there that was not in Harry Potter. Like, although Harry Potter's sort of cooperative, it's there's not like a huge amount of decision-making or like you don't really set up cool combos or anything. Mm. You don't have discussions about how are we going to possibly do this. And also... Uh, a, a, a thing in in kind of good deck building is you want your deck to be kind of efficient you don't want to just constantly buy cards all the time because the idea is the more cards you have the longer it takes to cycle through your deck and like get to new items and Harry Potter just kind of all the games I played of it it felt like you just get more things because you get more stuff (laughs) and it's like cool now you've got all the stuff you've got the every flavor beans or you've got you know that you've got Professor Lady it kind of oh. describes dream home as well. You look at it, and is it your dream home? No, it's just you've got some stuff. You've got two bathrooms. That's four more points. Congratulations on your two bathrooms. I don't dream of having two bathrooms. I dream of, like, you know, having a library that's the entire upper floor of my house or something. I dream of having a fireplace. That's the weird thing, actually. I remember playing it, and one of the living room cards depicts a fireplace, and I was desperate to have it, and there was no Ooh. game benefit because it was just an illustration on a living room card, you know? Oh, that's I want a fireplace now. Yeah, oh, I want a fireplace more than anything. Some of my friends uh, have gotten into, who have fireplaces, who live outside of cities, have gotten into burning, like, different scented wood, and there's a whole <laughs> world of, like, you can, Why is that funny? <laughs> it's fine, carry on. Well, yeah, all right, I'll carry on, but with slightly (laughs) less confidence than I had before. Um, You know, but obviously, like anything in the 21st century, you can buy, like, you can get really into it and buy different kinds of wood, and different kinds of wood (laughs) smells different when you burn it, and you fill your house, not just with the smell of a fireplace, which is good enough already, but, like, the smell of a, you know, jacaranda fireplace. Do you want to come round tonight? I'm burning jacaranda. Fuck yeah, I do, Paul. I right. desperately do. Oh my god! And we could play, you know, Dream Home with the the smell of of uh, rich, smoky jacaranda. In your I'm, I'm going to actually tell you a very brief. It's a shut up and sit down related aside, but I'll uh-huh. very briefly sidestep into this bit of trivia. When we first started filming, the the horrible apartment that I lived in in Tottenham actually had a fireplace. Oh, really? um, yeah, at the back of it, and the, the mantelpiece was over a sort of fireplace that still had a chimney um and it was we had no idea whether it was functional or not because our landlady was awful 
I'm <laughs> terrible at like maintaining anything, but I just I have distinct memories of asking her once, like, um, you know, can we use it? And she sort of looked at me and went, I don't know. I <laughs> said, so you own the you own the building, and she's like, there might be some, I don't know, there might be something in the chimney. And she she'd like just bought this house to rent it to people, knew nothing about it, and would just walk around it, staring at things like, oh, I didn't know that was there. <laughs> I yeah. have speaking of things that I didn't know were there. Wait, did you burn anything in the fireplace? No, it was full of trash when we moved in. And after a while, there was just, I'm pretty sure there was like a mouse or a rat in there because there, there was something that was in there. Yeah. Moved by itself. See, I'm in the situation. We have a fireplace and I was like, oh, we could use it. And, you know, apparently you have to pay like a chimney sweep, like 50 quid to come over and then they make sure the chimney's clear because it just fills with things, apparently. Um, and I was like, oh, this is going to be the best thing ever, winter fireplace. And then all of my housemates went, no way, <laughs> Quinn's, which was probably correct of them. But nonetheless, I felt betrayed. Oh. What were you saying you've been playing? Um, well, Things that you didn't know were there or weird noises. I have also mm. been playing Mythos Tales. Beautiful segue. Right. Right. Thank you. Um, this is basically... Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is like one of our favorite games ever. It's a very, very good deductive game of um, being a detective in Victorian London, having a map of London, and basically like a directory of places to li- visit. Uh, and cases that are like this, this strange... Per, this person has been killed or this strange item has been stolen um, and then you and however many people you're playing with rush about London sort of looking through this index going right I want to go to this location now because I have a feeling there is a clue there or we should go to the um, where where this murder was committed I to... mean what a, okay, so just to interrupt one of my favourite things about Consultant Detective is the positivity it starts with because you know you get the crime's described and then it's like where should we go first and you all look at each other and you go the scene of the crime and you yeah. all agree and you feel really good you go to the scene of the crime and you read what's there and then someone's like where should we go next and you just got nothing you have nothing already you've gone from zero to a hundred to having nothing again let's, let's go to the lady's house because no, she she might the lady's house. She's she, a red herring. She she might, but she mm. and this or like, do you want to? You can go to like the coroner or like. There's a couple of key locations, key people you can always visit, and they're usually somewhat useful. Mm. If people are having trouble imagining this, it's all just papers. You get a newspaper, you get a directory, yeah. you get a sort of choose your own adventure book. It's just a big sheaf of papers, and it's great. It's it's really good fun, and you end up pouring over the things like pouring over the newspaper because there are occasionally like extra clues, extra hints in there, and then red herrings, and then things even like when you do you know case number five, something that was in the the previous case's newspaper is actually relevant, and carries over. Mm. You know, it helps build a world, which is really neat. Mythos Tales is basically very, very similar. You get a map of the fictional H.P. Lovecraft town of Arkham, um, and you get a uh, directory of that as well, which is, you know, all these locations you can visit, like the university and all of these things, and I think the Forbidden Isle or something, (laughs) Um, which immediately stands out as a bit weird, and all that sort of stuff. Um, And then uh, I think it's Professor Armitage is his name, this sort of key character who is basically the Sherlock analogue or the the Inspector analogue who's like, oh, this thing happened, this person vanished or this item was stolen, uh, and he sends you on his way. You 
play it basically the same way, except you have more of a, a counter which counts down for you. Rather okay. than doing the Sherlock thing of um, you can go as many places as you, as you want, but the more you go, the fewer points you have. You have a counter that runs down, which um, gives you a bit more impetus. And you also have places, occasionally places you can go, where if you go there, a bad thing happens. Right. And it can be like, you you are sad, you've had a sad time, or like, game over. Um, <laughs> which is... Those are the two ways that, that H.P. Lovecraft stories tend to end, anyway. Well, this is the thing. First of all, this is the thing that I really like about it. It feels way more thematically appropriate to Lovecraft, insofar as it's not... It's not like a game like Arkham Horror where it's like, here are all the famous Lovecraft bad guys. Now, here are some weapons you can use to shoot them. <laughs> it's like someone saw something. They didn't know what the hell it was. Do you want to go there? And then you're all like, we probably shouldn't do that. Oh, wow. Um, and that that I like. And I like the fact that it encourages you to do things like be, be a, a Lovecraft-type investigator, go to locations, try and do research, talk to people, and then assume that people aren't being 100% truthful with you. And that, that's, I, I'm into that. Um, so far, though, I've played a couple of cases and the writing was not as good as Sherlock, I felt. Mm. Um, but I feel it might be getting better. But the thing is, the first case felt almost like a tutorial or an intro because it was very by the numbers. It was like you go somewhere, you talk to a person, they basically give you the next clue and then you go to the next place and you end up on this sort of path that, Funnily enough, you get to the end of the game, it gives you quite a good score. However, we've also played a couple of cases where the, some of that still happens, but you get to the end of the game and it starts asking you obscure questions, and you're like, I did not see that happen. I did not pick up that plot thread at all. Okay. I want to play more before I have like, uh, uh, you know, definitive opinion of this, but I thought Consulting Detective was very good at you know, what it emits or what it implies... Because, you know, you talk to a character and what they don't say is as important as what they do say. And being a detective, you should pick up on that. Yeah, Whereas I mean, Mythos Tales doesn't feel like it's quite got that level of subtlety. Absolutely. This is the, the, the thing that strikes horror into my heart if I had to design something like Sherlock Holmes. is What Sherlock Holmes manages is uh, not just that the mystery itself is difficult to solve, but that players can endlessly discuss what they think is happening. Yeah. Um, which is a level of implication in the writing um, that can always support everyone's theory, you know, because it's just empty enough, it's vague enough, it never locks off possibilities. Yeah, which gets, sometimes gets you into trouble because you end up manufacturing your own sort of, um, you know, diversions rather yeah. than focusing on, on the details. Yeah, and uh, that's that's when it's uh, absolutely fabulous of you run around London, you know, chasing a conspiracy theory, but it's like, no, this guy killed a guy because he was jealous or for money, and you're like, oh, yes, that makes sense. So I'm, I'm going to see, I'm going to play some more games. I'm hooked enough that, like, it has been entertaining and it's been fun. Wait, hang on. Can you explain what happens when you do, like, a bad thing? Because I can't quite imagine, you know, you go to the scene of the Shoggoth or whatever, and, uh, you know, there's a Shoggoth, and then what happens in, like, this sort of uh, mystery game? I'm going to actually have to get back to that and tell you, because we have deli- all we know is that that can happen, and we've deliberately avoided that sort of Ooh, thing. That's, um, but that's the best thing, because then it's left uh, to your imagination, which is so much more uh, evocative and frightening than... I, I might be a bit naughty and open one of the cases we've done and then, you know, sort of reverse engineer oh. it. 
okay, good. Just don't tell people in the in your review, you know, let that, that fear stay alive. Because the yeah, only thing that's scary about board games is the unknown. But the, mm, yeah, but I, I, I am, you know, sort of optimistic. I will play it again, and it's... It's been fun. It's been interesting. Um, even if, like, just like Lovecraft, the dialogue is really cheesy. <laughs> okay, okay. Well. So you know how everything in Lovecraft is an indescribable horror? Mm-hmm. It's like, but that's not what you would actually say to someone. It's like, oh, what I saw was indescribable. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. And, you know, early, early days. Okay, well, I'm just as excited for it uh, as I am because, hey, you know, you and I aren't the biggest fan of Fantasy Flight's, like, smorgasbord treatment of Lovecraft. So, Mm. you know, there's a ghost on your plate and then in the corner (laughs) there's a splodge of, you know, interdimensional rift. Then there's a puddle of maniac and you don't want to eat it because it's all mess. Tell me about Uh, your cottage garden. Man, Please. so this is this is a weird one because we're going to have to navigate uh, a treacherous garden full of traps, uh, sort of and tripwires because this is UA Rosenberg's game that is kind of loosely based on uh, Patchwork, right? Yes. Um, patchwork. How would you describe Patchwork? Very quickly. I would describe it as a sort of uh, extremely tight and actually very challenging game of. Laying tiles on a grid, but all the tiles are different shapes and sizes, so it's sort of Tetrisy. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a, a two-player puzzle where you are constantly trying to not only grab the tile that you might need to better fill your grid and score more points, but also try and grab the tiles that your opponent might need. Mm-hmm. And it works so well because it's two-player and because it's so tight, and everything that you do pretty much directly affects the other person all the time. Right. So imagine if uh, imagine if patchwork was less tight would be where I would start with the cottage garden review because what we what we're doing here is I'm kind of reviewing the sequel but I can't compare it to the base game. Um, so it's going to be tricky for us, a bit treacherous, mm-hmm. but we can do this. So cottage garden, which by the way I adore the theme of. Um, you start with a couple of flower beds and your objective is to fill that flower bed with like flowers basically and stuff you know watering cans and whatever else you can get you've got a central market board which is very large and that's a four by four grid of tiles tetrominoes you know there's an l-shaped flower bed and a a squiggly shaped flower bed a long thin flower bed that's very exciting (laughs) um and they all it's all illustrated beautifully and uh, what you're trying to do is uh on your turn you pick up one of these tiles um and then you place it on one of your two flower beds, trying not to cover up the flower pots and sort of mini greenhouses, which earn you points. Um, but you can if you're desperate. Um, so it's a combination of uh, wanting to cover them up, like fill your flower bed quickly so you can score it and replace it with a new fresh one versus trying to keep it pristine and keep all the point scoring stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the Ye- weird thing that yes. I think wasn't in Patchwork, um, or at least I can't imagine it was because it didn't work very well, um, is that um, th- so much of the game is in this 4x4 grid, right? So yeah. there's a green dice called the Gardener, this cuboid gardener, who walks one space around the edge of the board every turn. And whatever space he's on is the column um, or row that you can buy from so you tend to have a choice of like four things initially but then as people buy them you might only have a choice of two things and oh, right, it's only yeah. it's only when you're down to I think two things that it actually uh, refills itself 
So what you're doing is you're looking at this row and then you're thinking, well, okay, I, if I buy the stuff that's off in the distance in this row, then that won't affect me. And you kind of do the calculations and you're like, oh, if I buy that, that gives that player one less option on their turn because the gardener will have rounded the corner and then I've removed one of the tiles that that player could have gotten. Do you, is, this, yeah. um, is this making sense? Can you visualize this? No, that this? makes total sense. I mean, oh, Patchwork has a God. slightly different sort of a, a rotating thing in it. But yeah, it's... Um, it's very much about denying as much as it is about claiming. Right. The only problem being that looking ahead on the chart and sort of uh, mentally counting, oh, the gardener's going to wobble his way down to one, two spaces, and then uh, so on my next turn I'll be pulling from these, is not much fun. It's quite a lot of mental busy work and um, for a reward that's kind of nebulous because other players could might not even want that thing anyway because you have to cross-reference that with the garden they've got and what spaces they might want. Um, it's fine and weird and then scoring is this unusual system where basically you have not just one score tracker but six um, three of each type which is flower pots and mini greenhouses and then whenever you score a flower bed you pick one of the score trackers to move um, and then you're going to score all of them uh, like it's full of rules which have nothing to do with gardening or tetrominoes and that aren't massively fun um, it just felt like an experiment to me. It felt like having not played Patchwork, that he knew about the success of Patchwork and then was experimenting in doing something A, different, and B, for up to four players. Um, and despite the theming being gorgeous and fitting Tetrominoes being <laughs> incredible fun, there was so much stuff around the Tetrominoes and the denying of the Tetrominoes that um, just was stuff that was there that you have to teach that wasn't fun. Hmm. Mm, mm, that sounds... Mm. I mean, you know, having not tried it myself (laughs) i can't i can't be 100 percent authoritative but that sounds almost over designed it's you know it's still quite simple but it felt like uh you know obviously i don't know what was going through rosenberg's head when he designed this and i'm sure he's perfectly happy with it but for me it was like he was trying to do something else with the patchwork idea but didn't necessarily have an idea that worked as well but this just Mm. kind of got released anyway um i'll tell you what though it did make me want to try patchwork because just the act of placing tetrominoes on your garden is so funny like matt and i were cracking up because apparently my brain just can't do it like (laughs) he was almost crying laughing because i would have like an uh, 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 a cross-shaped tetromino and then trying to fit it I was trying to fit it everywhere on both gardens rather than like mentally visualizing it or whatever like like a sort of toddler trying to squeeze an X through a circular hole that is a little bit entertaining yeah it was uh, it was it was good it was fun it was fine we played it we did not have anything like a bad time and then I kind of decided that I didn't necessarily want to play it again I um, wonder again, if you'd not, like patchwork I probably would because everyone says it's great it's pretty good. It sounds pretty good. You only ever have the one good. board in Patchwork, right? That you fill and then you're done. You Yeah, you have one board each uh, and a bunch of tiles in the middle that you sort of rotate your way around. Yep. Um, and Cottage Garden has something which I don't know if it works as well because you have a much smaller grid and then you fill it up completely and then you just cash it in for points and you get a a new one that you replace it with which i think is that maybe a little less strong because so much of the joy of tetris in general is you make a mess and then you have to live with that mess forever yeah um whereas patchwork is more like you're done now and here's a clean start and that clean start is 
less strong, less exciting, because obviously I'm no longer invested in this board. You took my board that I was invested in it, and I scored it for some weird points, and now I'm starting again, and uh, yeah, you know what I mean? I, uh, it, it, oh god, that theme no. though, Paul, there's so many cats and hedgehogs to be seen in all the artwork. So many cats and hedgehogs. I like that you're talking about putting things in places as well, because, again, I can just very comfortably move on to talking about four gods. These segues are white hot, man. I'm, this uh, is, this is we're, we're at just S level now. We're this is S rank. Best S rank. Yep, that's, I know about video games. That's right. <laughs> that's what I meant. It's a game of uh, laying tiles and making worlds, and I guess being gods or claiming gods which we, we briefly played a game of, and we played it basically, we played it in free-for-all mode at Gen Con. Yeah. Which is where you sit down and you're all drawing tiles out of a bag, and you're both uh, trying to lay the tiles down, all, this, all the same square tiles that basically have things like lake or grassland or mountain or forests on them. And they have to, um, a bit like if you're playing a lot of tile-laying games like Carcassonne and many others, the tiles have to link together in a way that is logical that is consistent so like you can't have a, a bit of forest that suddenly gives away to a bit of lake without the art actually matching up that would be so crazy yeah that would be madness <laughs> you not allowed um but as you build a world together you uh at the same time you try and drop uh, people called profits on it and you're trying to claim areas that will hopefully end up being the biggest areas and at the end you score things based on you know, who claimed, like, the biggest mountains or also who had, like, the mo- the most of a certain type. But, and, and we play we play that one particular way, but I was surprised when I actually got a, a review copy because there's a number of different ways to play, including, like, taking turns and including, like, starting with certain gods that score points for things or claiming gods at some point in the game, which is, like, uh, you know, throwing in with... A particular, like, the mountain god, hoping that mountains are going to be really big this time. I thought that was really cute, uh, by the way, that, you know, you look at the board you've built and there's a lot of lakes, and then you go, oh, yeah, also lakes are religious for us, so... Yeah, it's, well, it's actually potentially an, an an extra interesting thing, I think, that you can start off not being at all religious about lakes, and you can ignore lakes, or you can, like, claim, you know, the lake god. But the the sooner you claim the you know the sort of the sooner you um, show your hand. But mm-hmm. if you wait too long, someone else might grab something before you want to. Yes. And if you can't let there's a there's a rule where you basically sort of have a tile buffer where if you can't find a way to you know lay a tile, you can put it down in front of you in your tile buffer. Which uh, initially I thought it's just like oh that's just you know stuff that you know you can try and put those down later on. But when we played it, we played it with a 30-second sand timer. So it was turn-based, but with a sand timer, a bit like a chess clock. That sounds like the perfect way to play. I wasn't so into the real-time stuff, but ooh, ooh. mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be like, oh, you have 30 seconds to do the thing that you do. But it's no, it's like you have 30 seconds to do as many things as you can, (laughs) which it turns out is going to make you really bad at doing those things. Then when your turn's over, if you've got, like, those tiles that you've put in your unlaid buffer, your opponent can just, like, grab from that. So if you can think of where to put them, they can just grab them from you and lay them instead. 
and they can they're two sided so they can flip them over see what's on the other side and maybe you forgot what was on the other side and maybe it fits perfectly and the game starts with you sort of going oh this is easy i've got 30 seconds i put down like five different tiles but when that you've got a very limited playing area and when it's nearly full you can't fit anything into anywhere and you just sat there for 30 seconds going what what am i going to where, where does this and if if you both pass the game is over but nobody wants to do that because you just might like draw one more thing or flip one and it becomes so dumb you know kind of entertaining i mean yeah. because you put yourself in that situation right you did and it like the, the the scoring the rules are very simple it's easy you know make a really big mountain but make sure you've claimed it before you make it and in that carcassonne kind of way if someone else is making the same kind of feature and they join up what they're making with you then that's like oh well you both score it so you divide the point so all your work is basically you know void especially like in a two player game that's awful um, but you know like three or four player that can still maybe bump your head but it, it just it gets harder and harder and it becomes weirdly surprisingly challenging and fun and silly so I was thinking that if this is like Carcassonne, but it happens at a very high speed and it involves a lot of like mistakes, how do you feel about nicknaming this game Car Crash Cassonne? Hmm. I mean, I it's, it's it's not, not it's not it's not good, is it? It's not. Good. It doesn't. It just doesn't quite fit the theme of like building a world of lush terrain yeah it, but yeah. otherwise it it does also make me think that i should play carcassonne with a with a timer and with the same rules of like you know you don't just draw one tile you just you've got maybe 20 or 15 seconds and it's like how many can you draw how many can you play <laughs> if you play something that's wrong or bad it goes in the bin or i mean whatever. that's basically galaxy trucker isn't it except instead of designing yeah, a oh ship God. you're designing a world <laughs> like which would explain I mean, a lot you're about right. it basically our world is. if uh, if God had you know t- to design it very quickly, which I guess he did if he had seven days in the, the Judeo-Christian I mean, fashion. Were six? six oh Christ! Yeah, because you need to you need to have a rest. <laughs> and I, thematically, I had to have a rest afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it's um, fu- I've noticed now that for as much as we recommended real-time games when we started Shut Up and Sit Down, games like Space Alert and Escape the Curse of the Temple, um, I don't know if I'm just getting old or, or tired or or both, but I, I always find that real-time games are, are ones that I don't necessarily want to play these days. I I am happy to play them, and I would play this again, but... I, I feel a bit like when I uh, did our double game dexterity review thing a little while ago when I was talking about what Pingo Pingo, Pingo yeah. I can never pronounce it. I feel like if I played it again, uh, it, you know, certainly with these rules in this way, it would feel a bit similar to last time I played it. Okay. And what about if you went full turn-based? That would be okay. Same as I'd also like to do more of the four-player simultaneous because that also has its own frantic stupidity. So the thing is, it, I I could play it again. I will play it again. It's enjoyable. But I feel I've, I've had about 80% of the fun from it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It It is categorically more going to draw me back more than, than Pingo Pingo will, ever will. <laughs> but... Um, I'm already seeing the limits of it, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. It's but, yeah. but quite good. Not bad. Not bad at all. 
Well, what a f- fabulously mediocre spread we've put Sli- out slightly, for people today. Well, I, I feel we've. I feel this has been a good podcast so far. This is maybe there are no shining stars, but there are some smiling faces. I don't know. <laughs> I, is that yes? Okay. Mm. I just think that's massively trippy if people go up out, you know, at night and look into the night sky and just see a load of gently smiling faces looking down at them. They'll see a beaming supermoon and it'll be very slightly bigger. Yes, than the but normal moon. Let's be real, a bit disappointing. But I feel like there's been a supermoon like every 2 or 3 years. I swear there's just something in a newspaper or on social media that's like if you look at the moon tonight it'll be massive. <laughs> <laughs> it'll fill like, your whole window it'll be in your house i like the uh the red moon <clears throat> you get uh, we get moons over here in europe sometimes where um a lot of sahara dust gets kicked up um and then uh the moon turns like a fat orange or red color those are cool moons Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag funny letter it's all go here at shut up and sit down podcast headquarters paul's just clothed his uh, oh for fuck's sake <laughs> Uh, let's just keep that in. That's a more plausible uh, demonstration of how I'm feeling. It's the mailbag, and we have no less than four reader mails. And I'm going to start with uh, Ryan Layden, who's written in Colour about flowers. Some, who's written in about some important business we had last time. He writes, "Cork quinces is cauliflower a vegetable? Ha ha! Lol, no, it's a flower trap." On the last podcast, and couldn't help but comment. This question is a variant on the good old: Is a tomato a vegetable? Yes? Ha! No, it's a fruit moron! Look, it's got seeds! This is frustrating, not just because trying to trip people up on terminology is pedantic, but because it is also wrong. And the reason it's wrong is a more interesting thing you can tell people at parties. So the whole confusion here is that there is a botanical and a culinary split here with shared vocabulary. Fruit has a meaning both botanically and culinarily, but vegetable has no botanical definition. It only has a culinary meaning. The reason for this is not at all obvious at first and potentially enlightening to people. It's because culinary fruits are also botanical fruits and an apple is a fruit is a fruit, but a tomato is a botanical fruit and a vegetable, meaning (laughs) savoury? Meaning it is savoury plant material. So a cauliflower is a vegetable because that's the way we cook with it and it's technically a flower, so it's a gotcha okay, yeah, right. (laughs) This goes on. Thanks, Ryan. Um, uh, Thanks. Uh, I don't think there's anything to add to that, is there? Uh, all I can think of is like the difference between sauces and condiments and... What's the difference between those? I don't know. It's like there is a difference. Well, um, don't get me excited with I've sauces really st- and then I've, just it, drop the oh sauce God. ball. <laughs> but, you know, to to a point where like there's... Oh God, there's spreads, there's condiments, there's sauces. I don't know where one ends and the other begins. And two degrees, because it doesn't matter. It's what works for you. It's a thin line between soup and stew, uh, but you're the person who gets to draw that line. I think it was uh, Plato who said that. Yeah, it definitely was. Paul, what's our second email bringing us up to 50% of the emails? It's from uh, a lovely gentleman called Bob Ball, which Mm. is a name that I derive more pleasure from than I should. (laughs) Bob. Uh, Bob Ball writes really want to just keep saying Bob Ball Bob Ball writes recently my wife and I I'm sorry that I didn't know there was a Mrs Ball recently (laughs) my wife and I kick started a fancy board game sorry fancy board game table with removable topper and recessed play area 
I know you're already jealous. Maybe I'll let you come over sometime and look longingly at it. Actually, yes, I am a bit. Um, it's going to live in our media room with our board game collection. I would like this room to be not a man cave, but a board game haven. A place that as soon as you walk in, you feel jazzed about playing anything, not just a swanky board game collection, but also the decor. I've been looking around for appropriate board game wall decals, art prints, and the like. But I don't want to just put up posters of Monopoly, Sorry, and Chess on the walls. I would like it to be a reflection of the modern game collection that I have without violating every copyright known to man. Or is there a path that I haven't thought of? Ideas? Question mark. Which is, and, and he very nicely signs off and says, thank you for the work, but immediately, hmm, yes. It, as soon as he says this, I, I have seen posters that have had like a board game theme very occasionally. And there's something about like the, the you know, the iconography and the typography of something like Monopoly, mm-hmm. because it's so well known and so established. And there's a degree of those icons, those images that actually resonate really well with people. But I also, you know, that of all the things that we have played and done, you know, that's the thing that I would not put on my wall. And if we actually think about many of the really actually incredibly well-decorated board games we've played, times where we've played something, we've got really excited about the art, the presentation. There's a lot of good art out there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I thought that you would have some fun answering this because when we go to Gen Con, you're the one who actually goes to the artists' booths and buys art. Um, right. So well, I mean, I mean, obviously, stuff like Fantasy Flight have a great selection of people who do Netrunner, who do Imperial Assault, who do um, things like Descent. I mean, you know, people buy Star Wars art occasionally. Would yeah, they so- buy Imperial Assault art? They might. So immediately my head went to like, you know, the, all kinds of board game artists end up doing sort of uh, tableaus or overworlds, like a box cover art, right? And then if you get in touch with that artist, you can hopefully get the full version of that art without the logo of the game on, you know? Like if you go into the board game yeah. room and there was just full beautiful maps of different worlds that don't exist or landscape portraits of other planets, you know? Um, and, you I... know, supporting those artists is a good thing. You know, supporting the artists who do work that you like um, is great. Um, yeah, it, it really is. Why why not uh, commission uh, an artist that you like to do um, a portrait of um, Mr. and Mrs. Ball in the style of like uh, whatever Westeros? Yeah. Oh yeah, like one murdering the other. No way, that's awful. No, no. Okay, what about the cover of the pandemic box? But like, instead oh. of just being like you know a guy in a high visibility jacket and a woman with a test tube, it could be Mr. and Mrs. Ball. That, the thing is, that is actually really quite a good idea for like a present or a fun thing. Or, oh my god, I, I hopefully if we have like artists who do this for a living who are listening, maybe it will inspire them to advertise their services to do this because I actually think that's really not a bad idea. Mm. Or get like one of those disposable Polaroid cameras, and then whenever you have a really fun game night, take a photo of your friends, and then you know you could over like. 30 game nights and 30 photos you build up a beautiful like uh polaroid uh what's the word collage collage like a photo collection yeah like one of those things that you stick up on the wall that is your friends doing fun stuff and it's you guys it's playing whatever you want D D and the time you finish pandemic legacy all the time uh you you actually manage to finish tok tok woodman without the goddamn tree falling over oh my god were you there at um our game developers conference lounge where 
the two of our interns finished not interns like volunteers finished a full game of Tok Tok Woodman uh, they got all the bark off and none of the tree and they yeah. actually like they called us yes. over from where we were demoing games and were like look look at this <laughs> you know this like complete physical impossibility because it's a moment that's a little bit sacred it was sacred yeah um that's, our... i actually really like that letter that's a really interesting thing to think about yeah i like that he was saying you know this shouldn't be a man cave there's so many obvious things you can put up that are a bit lame but also there's so many great things you can hang up if you want to be a bit different um our third third uh email this month comes from uh nicely done nicely done um, which is another excellent name. Um, and she writes, uh, I've, I've paraphrased some of this email because we were talking about other stuff, but uh, she writes, uh, so while women have made small inroads into the world of indie RPG game design, card games and board games are almost exclusively designed by men. There are just a small handful of notable games designed or co-designed by women. And these are very much the exceptions that prove the rule. How can I help more women break into the world of tabletop game design? Um, and I thought this was a good question, not necessarily because I had a good answer for it, but because, you know, it's something that bears thinking about um, and something that I think we all want, right? And I think it's a huge deal. It's hugely important. And unfortunately, we find ourselves in this position constantly yeah. where where people say, can you give some examples? And you're like, yeah, I can. I can give two or three yep. off um, the top of my head. I mean, for me, I feel that... that it's 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 difficult for me to imagine a robust board game um design theme with like uh you know um female creatorship behind it um until we try and fix the gender imbalance in board games like i mean uh just making women more comfortable making sure that board games don't uh, drive women away as was the case with our conan review recently obviously and it's nice to see that the whole board game industry has rallied around calling that game an idiot and a silly boy for for making women <laughs> look so bad let's go back to her question specifically though um how can she help more women break into the world of tabletop game design um i mean how do you help anyone break into the world of tabletop game design um Honestly, my, my honest answer would be I don't know. I mean, help your friends if they're interested in board game design, prototyping. like, And then we just get into the advice that I always give people, which is have a particular skill that you bring to board game design outside of just being interested in board games. Because a lot of the famous um, board game designers have backgrounds in psychology or engineering or mathematics. And um, these uh, skills can, or, can bring an awful lot to a board game design and help differentiate your, uh, your game. That's very true, actually. There's a lot of people who are good at, like, another particular thing, and it has influenced their work just in some way. Maybe, you know, directly or very indirectly. Oh, massively. Absolutely. I, I think I think directly, and I think, um, yeah, I think it's good. Um, so because we are incapable of providing a particularly good answer, hey, if you have a good answer, then uh, do write in to contact at shutupandsitdown.com and uh, let's uh, quickly jump over to our fourth shortest email or, or I would just say just comment at the bottom of this podcast if we get a discussion going that is helpful about this and it becomes a place where people can get, provide better answers than we just failed to do I am all for that damn right our commenters routinely prove that they are smarter and more professional than us so yeah it's disgusting Paul what does Ian Barker have to say well Ian is uh, certainly in the time that I've known Ian he's been a man who's brief he's concise he's to the point oh his email was much longer but I cut it down to this <laughs> oh okay um, certainly in, in the mutilated form of Ian that you presented to me <laughs> upon a platter twitching um, he says what's the biggest name in game design 
and then says, interpret that as you will. Whose games you haven't played yet? Why haven't you played their games? Who's the biggest name in game design who we haven't played? Uh, well, I will let you cook uh, your answer because I have an answer uh, of my own. And then you've played this guy's games. Um, tonight, I will play my very first Vital Lacerda game. Um, have I? You have. You played Kanban. Oh. You also played The Gallerist, I think. Yes. Right. I have played both of those. Uh, <laughs> both at BGG cons, different BGG cons. Uh, yeah, you're going to BGG con this week, and I want you. To, I am. I want you to play Race Cadets, um, which is Jeff Engelstein's new racing game, Ooh. and I want you to play Rising Sun, which is Eric Lang's new uh, Men and Women on a Map game. Ooh. Hunt those two down for, for me, Paul. Hunt them All down. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, Vital Lacerda, famous for very complicated and bitty simulationist games. Um, yeah. So in the gallerist, you're all running art galleries, and you've got a lot to worry about. In Kanban, you're designing cars, and you've got a lot to worry about. The one I'm playing tonight is his first big hit, which is Vinhos, um, and you're all making wine, and you have a lot to worry about. Um, and I've got the new deluxe edition and it's beautiful I know that the oh no I know that the art designer is a fan of Shut Up and Sit Down and I can't remember his name so I'm going to have to look it up as I talk Ian O'Toole um, has done absolutely magnificent work with the deluxe edition of Vinhouse. it's one of the prettiest board games I've ever seen um, so good work Ian um, and I read the manual and I, I'm actually even looking forward to teaching it tonight because it's going to be a real test of how smoothly I can teach a game because um, you've got wine and then where's the wine going Paul? Uh, pa- into your tummy? No, that's what my wife said as well but okay, <laughs> are you going to sell it to local uh, hotels for money? Are you going to export it overseas? For you prestige, could put it in my or tummy. are you get no? Are you going to send it to a wine tasting fair? Which of those three? Um, let me guess. Each of them has some kind of advantage that gives you points. Uh, yes, well, kind of. If you sell it to hotels, you don't get any points, but you then get money you can reinvest. But Paul, you've you've given it to the hotel too soon because you should have aged it in the cellar for longer. I'm so sorry. I uh, you've fucked it. Uh, but so the, the <laughs> interesting thing is that. Um, uh, that that makes wine intrinsically interesting as a resource is that um, obviously it gets better the longer you wait and the more turns you oh. wait. So it's the thing of like, I need money, but if the longer I wait, the more money I can get for this wine. Um, I need victory points, but the longer I wait, the more victory points I can get for this wine. So go figure. It's difficult. <laughs> um, it's funny actually that you say that because um, like thematically in both Kanban and The Gallerist, a lot of the things that happen... Um, you know, there's a lot of detail to the rules. There's a lot of things going on, but they all have something that I've got to say uh, is a strength. They they thematically make sense. It's like this happened because the the production line for the car now does this thing, or this this particular rule represents somebody, uh, you know, going to a gallery to buy a certain thing or to exhibit a painting, and. Putting that kind of narrative behind the rules actually does make them a little more, a um, little easier to grasp. Yeah, I and I have a, an amount of respect for that, even though I did not enjoy Kanban, and I sort of quite like the gallerist, but it didn't quite grab me. Yeah, you know, there's, um, it's a funny thing. I'm, I'm going to talk more about it. I expect I'm actually going to review Vinhus for this Friday, um, but uh, I am interested that. 
it's simulationist in so many ways. Like, you know, well, obviously your wine goes in cellars and then it ages, and obviously you have different vineyards in different regions, and it's almost like, you know, well, like I say, simulationist. But then suddenly it just becomes an incredibly abstract Euro game, and it's like, and also in the middle of the board you have a worker who moves between a grid of nine tiles, um, representing nine actions, that, and it's like, well, this makes no sense thematically. Um, it's, it's very weird. Um, Anyway, Christ, the question, what's a big name in game design that you haven't played yet? That's that's a really, really hard question for me because... You've played um, everything. I haven't, though, but the thing is there, there's so many... I've tried so many different things. Mm. Um, and it's like there's... Uh, what's his name? Um, the guy who did Isle of Sky, Alex, a- oh, Alexander, Alexander Pfister. Pfister? Or, Pfister? Yeah, that sounds right. I can't yeah. pronounce the surname, but it was like... He's done a bunch of... I think he did Mombasa, which... Did you play that? I did play Mombasa and didn't like it as much as... Every, I feel like it, I had a response to that, like The Gallerist, where uh, the world went crazy for it, but then I played it and I was like, this this is... Is, is it fun? <laughs> you know? But there's... I mean, there's a few things that he's done that I think have been uh, fairly well known. And I was like, I've never played any of his games. But obviously, uh, I was having this conversation about Isle of Sky a while ago and it's actually like it's the game of his that he's played and I find that, that sorry that I've played and I was surprised because Isle of Sky was sort of I thought it was too simple to be one of his games yeah because it's it's a very good game but in terms of like teaching it grasping it it's very easy to pick up I bet and I, I think I know someone whose games you haven't played um, do me try uh, me throw oh, it at bollocks. me I'm going to need to google something else what's his name um uh, Paul, uh, uh, pad for me. Mm-hmm. Riff. What would you like me to add? Ah, no, Volko that's what Runk, I'm supposed to that's do. That's his name. Volko Runk, the world's uh, maybe most famous war game designer currently uh, in service. Ooh, Ooh uh, maybe not then, because I know that game, that name, but I don't know if I played anything by him. Yep, so his top games would be Labyrinth, War on Teller, uh, Fire in the Lake, Andean Abyss, Cuba Libre, uh... Ooh, bollocks. Did he also do 1960, Working of the President? No, he did not. Yeah, he's doing that, all the... Oh. I, we had Labyrinth. I had Labyrinth, and I could never quite get into it. So arguably that's a yes, <laughs> because you... I, I could not grasp that. And then I don't remember what happened. I think our friend Tom borrowed it, or you ended up playing it, or Labyrinth went somewhere. But oh my goodness, that was... I'm usually pretty good at eventually like getting a game, but that was one that I failed to grasp and something else happened and I never returned to it. <laughs> yeah, it's behind me on my shelf now. Interestingly, it's a board game that's actually um, now dated because it models the War on Terror from 2001, but um, uh, because the War on Terror has changed so much since that game was published, because I guess it was published in... Oh, I've got it in front of me, actually. I can pull it up uh, yeah, published 2009 2010 um, yeah 2010 yeah. Um, yeah but obviously six years on lots of things have happened in the war on terror so he's released like another pack of cards I think yeah Labyrinth the Awakening 2010 to something else um, which is like the same game but with different card packs to simulate what's gone on since then and that's astonishing because that just reminds you how long all of that has been going on for. I know it's crazy. Oh my god, let's not talk about politics on this week of all weeks. I mean, arguably we already have, but uh, hey, let's jump over to some folk games that will survive through the ages, no matter who is president of the United States. Here we go, folks. Folk game of the month. 
Our first folk hymn comes all the way from Sweden and from Marcus, Marcus Brisman. He writes, I'd like to tell you about a folk game that we used to play when I was going to big meetups for youngsters interested in nature and hiking. Sounds good. Sort of like Boy Girl Scouts, but less organized and badgy. Less badgy. Oh, but the badges are the best bit. Little achievements for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, I, I guess. I don't need the badges to have fun. Mm. The, the game was called Yip Yip. I love this. You mark out an area about the size of a badminton court, or a bit smaller depending on the number of participants. The area is divided in the middle, and there are equal teams on either side. A person from one team steps over the line in the middle and starts saying yip repeatedly. Anyone the person touches while on the other side gets eliminated. If the person ever gets back to their own side of the area, however, the person yipping... (laughs) Wait, wait, have I... Oh, wait. Ah. Uh, Oh, yeah. So um, the the person who runs over the line, if they ever stop yipping because they run out of breath because they can only have one breath after they step over the line then they're oh. eliminated there we go thank you yeah have you actually ever stops yep rules may vary on the yipping <laughs> on if the yipping person needs to be entirely over the line or merely touching their own side if you ever leave the court you are of course eliminated as well the game usually starts off with the opposing team staying as far away from the yipping person as possible until someone has been touched and then everybody pounces to keep the person from getting away. Best played with durable clothing and friends. So, Quinns, immediately you you had you were skeptical about whether this is a folk game. Well, it's not a folk game, and I'm going to tell you why. But just to clarify, so you have someone on your team who runs over, and then they're on the yep. other team side. Yep. But yep. Yep. the other team, yep, 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 yep. Uh, but if the other team managed to just grab you or wrestle you to the ground, this is like a full contact thing, then um, obviously you're going to run out of breath before you can cross your line, right? Um, Because you're saying yip, 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 as you're being wrestled to the floor. Um, So yeah, it's the thing of, uh, you don't want to be touched, but then also, so it's either you want no touching or maximum touching, basically. But this is not a folk game because this is a sport. This is just kabaddi. Um, and I thought this would be an opportunity to briefly describe uh, the Indian sport of kabaddi and how awesome it is because this is like a full televised league sport in India. Um, you know, it, and the, this is the game of kabaddi. It's exactly the same thing, except played on a I, larger I've area. I've never seen this. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so people... Go, oh, let's find out how you spell it. Um Yep, it's spelt phonetically. It's K-A-B-A-D-D-I. Um, it's a contact sport that originated in ancient India. Um, it is questionable whether in full professional kabaddi um, people really do hold their breath, and purists will tell you that they do, but apparently they don't. Judges are watching to see if you uh, breathe, but really it's just, it's sort of like, it's it's an incredibly brutal sport, basically, and um, the tactic that's common is that the defending team will hold hands, because then if you want to touch, like, imagine seven people holding hands, Paul. If you yep. want to walk up and touch one of them, then all the rest of them have the opportunity to just circle around you in a kind of noose. Um, and it's very good to watch. It's a, it's a hell of a thing. Um, so it's not that Marcus Brisbane's game isn't good, it's that it's too good. And has left the realm of folk games into a full popular sport watched by millions and millions and millions of people. I, you know what I thought? I thought you were going to say that this is just a playground game because I can imagine this being a spectacular sort of or school field kind of game, which is like, you know, rugby without a ball. 
where yeah. it's just clearly a group of people are trying to pile on to another group of people and it turns into a sort of tug of war stamina type well, it's, isn't it nonsense. rugby but a player is the ball you know because then like mm, arguably if they run up and touch you and run away that's like the rugby ball bounced off your chest and that's terrible for everybody but obviously you want I mean, the the thing that i didn't quite get and this is what confused me while i was reading was like a person do you only have one person yipping at a time what, yeah is there anything to prevent like multiple yips there and is, distracting yeah. yips so and... one team will be on the offense and so let's say there's like eight people on each side paul you know um the defending team will all link arms and then like stay quite like go very very far away on their side so you have to run quite deep to touch one of them um and then someone on your time on your side will know that they're on the aggression um but the defending team won't know which one it is so then suddenly one person from your team will bolt over the line and start going beep, 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 um, and it will run up and try and touch one of the defenders and then run back and then that person's eliminated interestingly I, the thing might, well. might <laughs> okay maybe interesting depending on who you are but um, a friend of mine uh, was telling me that the great thing about kabaddi is that um, it is a sport where because one team can go down to um, like one person if the rest of their team is eliminated uh, but that person can still do spectacularly well because you only need one person to go on the offense. And so there are Kabaddi superstars who, you know, their team will get down to one person, but then they will run over and in a sort of like Errol Flynn cartwheeling, leaping uh, display of athleticism, will like touch everybody on the other team and then go back over the line. Um, yeah, because, you know, if your team's smaller, it's harder to defend. Yeah, but it's also just as easy to attack. And so it's a game where people can win you know can come back mm. from the very brink to win great game people should watch some kabaddi on youtube if they want to uh have a very weird and interesting time i am gonna do that after this podcast but you should man it's a heck of a thing um so if that's not a folk game here's one that is um this was sent in by dr chris savile and Chris writes, Hello, shut up and sit down. Paul's comments in Podcast 47 about playing a fong at a wedding reminded me of a wedding game I thought you'd be interested in. To honour the heritage of the bride, the guests at the wedding of a friend of mine were encouraged to play traditional Norwegian wedding games. You know this is going to be good. In the case of the heteronormative couples involved, the women were taken away to be blindfolded while the men removed their shoes and socks and then were made to stand on chairs arranged in a line along the side of the hall where the reception was taking place. The women would then work their way along this line, feeling the feet of each of the men in an attempt to identify their partner from feet feel alone. Oh, God. During this, the men were not allowed to talk. If the correct man was identified, then he would get down from the chair and the couple would be allowed to rejoin the happy singletons and join the adjacent wedding party. If a mistake was made, the forbidding Norwegian arbiter would return the lady to the start of the man line to try again until each Either the correct feet were identified or there was only one man left, so they identified their partner by default. Anyway, I thought you'd like to slightly broaden the scope of the folk games you investigate beyond sex games in church youth groups. Thanks for the extra bit of joy you bring to my gaming experiences, Dr. Chris Savile, brackets, PhD, and also crap at Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Lovely well, stuff. <laughs> so... Oh, I, immediately I want to say there's no need to only play this at weddings there's no need to <laughs> to to just have just men or just women and really what you want to do is you want to blindfold your subject and then the, you know like the line that they're that they're feeling along you want to have like uh, just a garden statue in there you want to have a dog in there you want to have just someone's shoes because if they're taking some, their shoes off you could have loads of shoes yeah 
just just empty shoes just a line of empty shoes and no people oh my god i mean they don't even know that nobody's there i mean we'll get on to whether this game is like gross or not in a bit but my my favorite bit is that it says um uh if the correct man is identified then he would get down from the chair and the couple would be allowed to rejoin the singletons in the adjacent wedding party which in my head I imagine this game being played in like a stark and very dimly lit warehouse next to the venue. <laughs> you know, you go in and there's no music and there's it's like echoey whenever anyone says anything and there's like six chairs and it looks like the scene of a gangland shooting and the women are blindfolded. It'd be one of those dismal Scandinavian murder mystery thrillers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, the last, if, if you come last in the competition, then you, you're at the wedding. Oh, imagine, though, all the women are blindfolded, and then they hear a gunshot, and they rip off their, <laughs> their, <laughs> their blindfolds, and one of the men is dead, and none of them know who did it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, so, like... When I first read this email, I thought it was worse than it is because I thought the men had their feet up and I think it's the bottom of the feet that are the nasty part. I think it's much, much finer if you're touching the top of the feet where all the smooth skin is. That's like a more pleasurable thing. The bottom of people's (laughs) feet, I don't want to touch. But the top of people's feet, that's like fine, oddly soft, maybe a bit hairy if it's men. Uh, You know, I think think this is good. Yes, it's... With with all things like this, as far as I'm concerned, it's fine. I just want to I want to subvert it. If people know what they're getting into and they are, you know, they are consenting parties, you know, taking part in this thing, it's it's fine. Yeah, it's very silly. I just want to subvert it by, funnily enough, the empty shoe thing that you mentioned. I just want a row of empty shoes and one person left in the room while everyone goes. <laughs> And there's fondling back and forth, going like Maxwell, Maxwell, is that you? Hello. Do you think maybe it, you're Maxwell? I, I wonder if, for a start, I, I want to know that if my wife could do this, but also I wonder how bad it would feel if she was like the last wife to uh, to know. identify my feet. Like you know, you're like, oh, ha, ha, you got it wrong once, Lee, but you know, maybe you'll get it right next time. But then after like nine other women have gone and identified their husbands, you know, it would be. I mean, you'd be laughing. Obviously, you could also uh, gender swap this and have men trying to identify women's feet. Although that somehow is less subservient, but a lot creepier if you've got men rubbing women's feet. It is a little bit. All these folk games. I, I, okay, so at this point, I because we've been doing this folk game feature for about a year now, I don't know if it's like, is it me who picks out the sexy folk games? Because they're clearly more entertaining to read. Or like, is it the the folk games I get sent in are just generally sexy. Like, I'm going to have to really analyze this stuff. I feel like a lot of... um, Wow, I mean, I'm traveling back in time now, but we found a lot of excuses when we were younger to play things or do things that were, I suppose, part of the experience of sort of, I don't know, transitioning into adulthood and becoming aware of who you are attracted to and what you liked and things like this and... I I don't know if it's like a remote, very, very remote way of like just gamifying growing up or turning growing up into a game so it becomes sort of less serious and, you know, you you can't have a serious conversation about a, a topic yet or you can't have a serious interaction with people who you're attracted to but if it's gamified somehow that's okay yeah i mean in the case of this game i would hope that you know uh the men and women involved know who they're attracted to considering they're all married 
Um, but no, you're completely right uh, in that you play is literally how animals become good at things they are good at. You yeah, know? that's true. Um, I, yeah, you know, did, did lions play hunting each other so they can get good at hunting? And yeah. I play Chinatown so I can get good at eventually selling my house one day. Uh, or it's the same Dream thing. Home. Selling my copy of Dream Home one day is a lot I more know, I mean, you play Dream Home to just arrange your bathrooms yeah no i mean if for that to be a useful skill for it to be like dream home i would have to be building a house and have no idea what was going in the house and where and you know only be able to like put in one room each day <clears throat> the comparison i wanted to make earlier about dream home as well is that it's not as good as castles of mad king ludwig both in terms of a game and also looking at something you've built and going, this is my dream home. There's a train room next to a kitchen and I could walk back and forth between the two all day. That's interesting to me because you, you actually weren't as enamored with that as I expected. Oh, Mad, uh, Castles of Mad Queen Ludwig? Castles yeah. Of, yeah. I wasn't. Um, and then a funny thing happened, which is that I bought one too many Suburbia expansions and my copy of Suburbia became too... Uh, dense and weird and then i didn't enjoy playing it anymore which now in a weird way <laughs> i've spent so much money on suburbia that i now want to play king ludwig instead especially because that's and it's not now. even castles the thing that i was impressed by <laughs> just to step back is how you talked about multiple floors in dream home whereas ludwig is basically kind of a bungalow because it's annexes never... of mad king ludwig isn't it yeah you never build upwards no but you build downwards you have a basement you can build some downward you do, stairs to a but you creepy don't build basement. under things. No, no, it's it is it's weird. It's not. Yeah, it's more like a building that's on a hill because it's only ever one story. It just goes up and down. It's like that time where I, I was very young and I made a D and D map of uh, like a manor house for some players to explore, and they went, "It's all one floor. It's all just one enormous <laughs> one floor building." And I went, "Oh yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it?" Oh, that's mm. so good. But you could have played into it as like it's like a magic House of Leaves style thing. Too late. Yeah, too late. it's literally decades like late now, isn't it? Twenty years too late. Oh goodness me! Well, this has been a long podcast that I feel got increasingly fun towards the end. So if it went long, it's only because Paul and I were having more fun the longer it went on. Um, but now I'm afraid we'll have too much fun uh, in the next segment. So let's draw this to a close. Uh, if you have been enjoying the podcast there's no need to review it on iTunes because we're going to be relaunching it next year for reason, for technical reasons and so just save up all that energy to rate and review us on iTunes and other podcast feeds because we'll need you to do it again next year but if you have a folk game or an email to send us you can email that to contact at shutupandsitdown.com and if you'd like any more details on any of the games we talked about today such as Four Gods or Aeon's End which are probably the two best ones we talked about or Mythos Tales there'll be links to those games uh, sites and resources on this podcast's description podcast 49 on shutupandsitdown.com that felt professional that was, that was good wasn't it that was really good yeah it only took 49 podcasts to get that shit down um <laughs> lovely stuff well paul have a great time at BGGCon, and remember rising sun and race cadets Ooh, i'm even more excited i was a little bit excited before but i'm i'm even more excited now hot diggity and other things thanks for but listening thanks for li- that's exactly what i was going to say thank you for listening everyone <laughs>